Hey everyone, welcome back. We're here with Kate Kilroy. Uh, she is a mother of six kids, childbirth educator, delivery, delivery doula, and a United Methodist appointed Pacific Northwest church planter. She is queer, 37, enjoys art, comedy, and sci-fi, and she is also my uh, um, fellow student at Claremont School of Theology. So we've had um, the honor of doing studies together the past few months and uh, we're so excited to have her here to share a little bit of her story and uh, some encouragement in this really strange time so i'm gonna pass it off to you kate and let you tell us a little bit about who you are and how you got here sure okay priorities first because i made this error in our promo on your screen am i pointing at you <laughs> yes, you are. Good, because if I have to like look you in the metaphoric eye, I want to be able to do that. <laughs> we recorded um, our promo and assumed that I would be on the Zoom call and I wasn't. And so that was my... So <laughs> I was to my painting. Her tree painting named Devin. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Pastor Devin here. Um, yeah, thank you so much for having me today. So Devin and I, like you said, met at school. And uh, it was exciting to get to begin to reconstruct a whole bunch of my own faith education and the formation that I, I'm going to say, um, endured or was imposed upon me throughout my entire life. And now it's really exciting to get to be in school and relearn um, so much of the biblical text that I was taught as fear and that I was taught as, even if you weren't queer, like every verse is a clobber of scripture. Like it's all about how, how shameful and how your enmity against God and how God is so basically disappointed in your existence. So it has been such a gift to go to seminary and finally have alignment between what I was feeling in my spirit and um, religious context of institutions as well as relationship with the word and so we had a chance to share a little bit of our story and yeah so your pastor thought my people might want to hear that fantastic jerry springer story so here i am so what are your specific questions for me today do you want me just kind of to run through the highlights of how i came to be where i am now yeah okay all right, so a little bit about um, me. So I'm a, I'm one of seven kiddos, and uh, most of us have different dads, different parents, are split up all over the place. Uh, and I guess in order for you to really understand what current me looks like, it makes sense to go to my own mom since I spent most of my childhood with her, and she had a very, very challenging childhood. Um, ended up running away from home when she was 15 and hitchhiked across the country um, in order to get her own physical body safe. And when she did that, I genuinely believe, and I still believe, um, that my mother was making the absolute best, most radical choices for me that her own mother didn't make for her. However, a lifetime of abuse and trauma and having to grow up so fast, so young, led to quite a bit of um, substance abuse. So I grew up in homes where people would be literally smoking crack within three feet of me and just moving from house to house. I went to over 17 different um, elementary schools and just moving all the time. And I only have one, or I'm sorry, I have two memories of being in foster care when I was young. Um, 
but according to my family that I didn't get reconnected to till I was an adult, I was actually in and out of foster care like seven or eight times, but I don't remember that. And because my mom's addiction was so severe as she coped with um, her own, her own reality, it meant that I was exposed to not just the awareness and the physical risk of being so close to chemical substances, but it also meant that she would eventually um, fall asleep, go into some trans-like state related to her abuse, and it left me victim as a young woman. So from probably, as a child, so probably from like five to seven, um, I was raped, molested multiple times from multiple different people um, coming through the house. And the interesting part here is this is where I start to really be able to identify the harm that the church did to me. Because you would think that that would be like the most traumatizing story, and I'm not minimizing that suffering, but I had been exposed to it for the entirety of my life. So I certainly didn't wake up one day and think that was weird. That was all I knew. So that was just how the world worked, according to me. Um, and, and I learned some survival skills because humans are resilient and I learned okay well if I want to eat today um, I have to get intention from that person who's awake and alert and able to bring me food um, so that meant that I learned that my body was a currency that I could use for, to secure my own survival so there was there was wisdom in survival mode and then when I joined the church I was just a few weeks from turning 14 I started hearing all these new stories and by the church, I mean like the fundamentalist, evangelical, Bible belt. And I would be super honest and say, this isn't like, this isn't like your average um, evangelical church. Like we're a cold, like we have rules about what women are allowed to wear and if they're allowed to cut their hair and, and they're not, or wear makeup or wear pants or anything like that. There are a whole lot of rules. So it's even more extreme than maybe just those who believe um, in literalism of the Bible. And so the real harm came to me as a female in the church because at least when I was um, being abused, I knew how to control my situation and my circumstances and I never felt guilty or bad about it. It just was what it was. But when I joined the church, I started hearing this new narrative about um, women. Um, it was inappropriate for women to have power. And it was inappropriate for women to have control. It was certainly inappropriate for women to have sexual interest, sexual desire, or any sexual ownership, God forbid, sexual experience. And having been so severely victimized, um, immediately I knew, oh, and now I'm not even a candidate for this heteronormative cisgender obey your husband and submit to all his authority and you might get a good husband and therefore be allowed to be in ministry story that I had been taught. And that's when I first started to think, oh, this church thing is pretty terrifying because I, I was so grateful after having so much instability. I thought, I finally know, like, I finally have a community and the rules were rules. I mean, they very much were rules, but at least I could go through the checklist and I knew how to belong. Like at my mom's house, I want to know if I had food that day. And depending on her own bipolar disorder and all of her issues, I didn't know what to expect. But at church, I knew what to do to receive love and to be accepted in that community. And I realized that I already wasn't qualified based on just their purity story and my gender story. And at that point, I mean, I was, I've been aware of probably my entire life of my sexual orientation story. I don't remember a time of not being aware of that. Um, 
whether or not I was actually practicing anything like that. And I, I was like, oh, I'm fundamentally bad here. Like there's, like I'm not able to be redeemed because this is, this is not an action that I would do. This is who I am. So that's when I started to really experience the terror of what it was to desperately, desperately want to belong in a faith community and having really sincere encounters with God in that space. And I was so afraid to trade my experience with God, like the risk of them knowing about my abuse or my lack of interest in um, their, or, or I shouldn't say lack of interest, my, my deep resistance to what it was to be um, married in this very specific context. Um, that would have disqualified me from, from all of those experiences. And it honestly just never even crossed my mind that there was another way to serve God or a different way to approach theology um, or that there were churches that didn't do it like that. I had no other church experience. So in legitimate ignorance, I was just afraid to resist or question or find a new community. This was the first time in my life I'd ever had any kind of security. And so when I was assigned my husband at like 15, um, some state representatives um, recognized anointing and call in my life, which I absolutely affirmed. I felt called, I felt drawn, I felt very compelled to participate in ministry. Um, they pulled me aside and told me that it was inappropriate for me to have those gifts without the protection of a husband and pointed across a large fellowship room with about 400 other youth in it at a statewide district event and said, that's the husband we picked for you. And um, I dropped out of high school to marry him and continuing, um, continuing education is not an option in that cult. And the marriage was really, really bad. And it was really, really hard um, for him too. Like he had his own rules where he wasn't allowed to be himself. And, uh, and it was so exhausting. And to go back to those elders and say, things aren't working. Like this isn't okay. I don't feel safe. And for them to then tell me that the will of God was for me to submit and to be good and follow the formula and just trust that God would make it all okay. Um, was of all the abuse that I endured, um, the scariest, most devastating I mean, it just taught me to not ever trust my instincts, that I was, I must be wrong. I'm not doing it right. If I prayed harder, it would be fine. Um, so the church itself was a huge, huge um, pain, pain, like caused deep trauma. And I've actually been clinically diagnosed with religious PTSD as I left that cult and uh, began what does it mean for me to still want to love God and want to be in connection with God and somehow not be a part of that story? So, yeah. And, and somehow, like you, five years ago, I was never going to be in a church again, no matter what. I was celebrating that I was divorced and had kind of accepted that that meant I wasn't welcome in any church. Um, and then I stumbled into a United Methodist Church where they saw my gifts and talents and thought that they still had use. And I spent a lot of time trying to push them away because I didn't want to get rejected later. Um, I was just so used to not being qualified. And, uh, and so it has been a rapid rediscovery of God and a rapid personal transformation of my own self-identity in Christ. Um, and I would have never imagined even three years ago, that now I would be a full-time church planter in my area because sadly my story is not that uncommon. And I regret to 
assume that there are even people right now um, in your home church who are listening to this and maybe have elements that they can be like, oh, I connect to a piece of that story. So, so that's the work I get to do in the world now is trying to create um, opportunities of community and engagement that aren't as threatening and scary because I deeply believe that the concept of community and God are good and that the construct that we've created in the institution, those can be terribly oppressive. You have been through so much in your life. I yeah. am so grateful you are here on this planet still. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, agreed, agreed, agreed. It's kind of typical people of trauma t- tend to, um, we're survivors, right? Like that, and that's not optional. Like that's thrust upon us. So um, it's interesting the tiny little subtle things that'll trigger me and the giant things that are like, eh, no big deal. <laughs> so, so that's super interesting. If you meet other people or maybe, like I said, if anybody here can relate, it's interesting to notice what is immensely triggering and excavating and deconstructing why something might be triggering can be so deeply internalized that it's not even always obvious. That took a lot of introspective self-work and that's exhausting real work. Yeah. yeah. That's tiring. It's hard. I think mm-hmm. a lot of people watching this relate to um, both the st- your story of sexual abuse and your story of religious abuse. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, the, the fact that one in three women will or have experienced uh, physical sexual abuse means that a third of the women watching this uh, can relate to your story just on that. Right. Uh, and, so many, and so many of the women who are violence victims um, through sexual abuse Right there, a lot of these things are crimes of opportunity. So if you're in a situation, find yourself outside of not taking any responsibility upon the victim, but find yourself somehow in a situation where there is an opportunity, especially if you were a young person, you probably had more than one opportunity to be exploited, right? That was some kind of lifestyle issue in your home or in your story that made you more susceptible. And so typically those people have even more than one story, which is, Again, it's a lot of internalized identity, and especially in the Christian church where women in general, well, I would say humans in general, it's not just women, but humans in general in the Christian church are taught that like sexuality is like this terrible, scary monster that um, will consume you and you won't have anything left for God and you're just going to turn, you know, like if you enjoy sex, you're probably going to end up being a porn star. Like there's nothing, there's nothing in between. Yeah. Um, And men seem to have cultural permission to be interested, whereas women, we seem to have a high expectation to physically be appealing, to be sexually desirable, but not to have any actual sexual interest or desire to be sexually engaged. And if you've already been a victim of sexual abuse, um, people tend to, women specifically, tend to respond on... um, there's a spectrum where they're either very comfortable with their sexuality and don't feel that there's anything sacred or special about it because it's been part of their story for so long, or they're very protective of their body and both are totally appropriate. Anywhere in between is appropriate um, given the best that we can do to cope with those circumstances. But for outsiders, 
the two thirds who maybe haven't experienced or among men, um, if indeed their statistics are different, um, it, it can look confusing, right? Because if you are a survivor of trauma or, and even religious trauma, somebody picks up a Bible and you just tense up, you just tense yeah. up. You're just used to, that is a tool used to remind you of um, what a failure you are and how you are never enough. And it is not God's love letter. It is the affirmation of what a disappointment you are and, and how you're supposed to love this book. And yet this book has details about how you're not going to make it. It's just dip, very, very mixed emotions. That is so confusing to use the language, the Bible as a love letter. And then also talk about how this God is sending you to hell for <laughs> who you are at your core is yeah. Bad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If I were to send a love letter like that to Kylie, I don't think she would. <laughs> Good yeah. job, Kylie. <laughs> Shut that down. <laughs> yeah. So you, um, can you share a little bit about how you, because you mentioned your religious environment as a cult. Mm-hmm. How did you escape the cult? And then yeah. what, how did you kind of, did your belief change in God after that? Yeah, yeah, thanks for that question. I left the cult because my, my marital situation was so toxic and so bad. And I re- realized that, um, that I was near suicidal. I, I don't know how to, I don't have language to describe what I was because I obviously wouldn't kill myself because that would send me to hell in the, in the theological lens that I was taught. Um, and so that wasn't an option, but I would just desperately want to fall asleep and not wake up. And I had no motivation. I was sick all the time. I was just really struggling. If not for the children, I don't know where I would have, how I would have survived. Um, and we got this gift in that I had always always have been a very cards on the table person, even in my cult days. And I had told my husband, I said, I can't keep doing this, but he thought it was a sin to go to counseling or to receive therapy or to do anything like that was a sin. Um, and I was begging him to get to go to counseling. And he was saying, not while you're my wife, that's like not acceptable. We won't do that. We have a holy household. And then I said, then I can't be your wife anymore. Cause like my kids aren't going to have a mom. I need, I need to get help. I need to let, you need to let me get help. Um, and it began a process to where he and I, so in an act of compassion, honestly, my ex-husband said, um, I'll go active duty. He was already in the Navy reserves. He said, I'll go active duty. And while I'm gone, like, I cannot know that you're going to therapy. So like we, we, that's how tight the grip of the cult was on it. The only, I was willing to take that risk. He wasn't. Um, and in order for me to try to get some help, he had to be gone so that he couldn't be poorly managing our home. So, um, he left and was gone for a whole year. And it was during that time of introspective work. And he and I were still friends. Like we would talk every day on Skype and whatever, but it was during that time that I literally snuck out. Um, I told this church I had to leave because Obviously, my husband was leaving and I needed family support. And we were in Indiana at the time. And that's not where my family was. My family was here in Washington. So I said I needed family support. The church understood. It wasn't personal. It wasn't about the church. It was about my need for family support. And I didn't tell anybody in Washington I was coming. I, like, 
got an 18-wheeler, loaded up my kids, and snuck back into Washington under the radar. And that's when I really started to realize how severe, I thought my marriage was just bad. I just thought I was in an abusive marriage. I just thought I was in a really unhealthy situation. But then I would wake up every morning having an anxiety attack, like worried I was late for a prayer meeting. I'm terrified that I had forgotten to do something for the church. And I would like literally have these anxiety attacks because I wasn't going to a church. I had snuck in. Nobody knew I was there. So I certainly wasn't going to start going to a church within our same institution. I didn't know what to do. And I realized, oh, I'm in like a really, I'm not okay. Like I'm really not okay. I'm not okay on lots of levels. Um, and so I spent that next year asking God, is it okay for me to be not going to church? Um, and when I was in the cult, they used to tell you, um, there's a scripture, I think, in Thessalonians, and it says that if you don't love the truth, God will send you a strong delusion that you would believe a lie. And I would start to feel, even when I was in the cult, I would feel, hear the preaching that would, the preaching would be so stern and so hostile and so aggressive. The gospel was incredibly aggressive. And it was just like, you know, repent, be baptized, was, you know, hellfire, brimstone, every single service. And then, um, I would get in that, they'd have the big altar calls, everybody's at the front weeping like four times a week. It looks super dramatic like that. People speaking in tongues, raising our hands, all that. I'm weeping, I'm weeping. And the whole time what I feel happening sensationalistically in my heart and my soul and my body is, I got you. I got you. And yet I hear this narrative all around me like, God have no fellowship with unrighteousness, purge your soul, cast it out. This really intense, um, again, it was like, re even when I was being abused as a child, my abusers didn't treat me like that. My abusers groomed me. My abusers took time with me and church was violent and intense and aggressive. Then I would sit crying and people lay hands on you and be, forcing these physical prayers on you and the whole time be feeling innately within, I got you, you're okay. Um, and so I had been taught that that must have been the devil. That was the devil convincing me to be at peace with my sin. That was my flesh trying to convince me to resist the Holy Spirit's transformation within me. Hmm. So when I left the cult and I would have these panic attacks and I would start chanting scriptures to myself because I have about, I don't know, a Rolodex of KJV versus deeply engrafted into my memory. I start chanting scriptures to myself to calm myself down. Um, and I would feel that calming. And then I would have another anxiety attack. Like, is that calming the devil trying to get me to be calm <laughs> so that I don't feel convicted to go back to church? There was so much. Again, this all goes back to teaching people from the pulpit not to trust their instincts, not to trust. And so I guess if I had one word to share with everybody out there today is that the Bible talks about the infilling of the Holy Spirit and rivers of living water flowing out from within us and that the gift of God is innate. I sincerely believe that all the theatrics, and I say theatrics, but I genuinely had beautiful supernatural encounters when I was in that church. And, and innately within me, without all those theatrics, is this inner knowing. And so basically, I would say the question as, you're, as I'm deconstructing and as I continue to deconstruct and as old narratives that have been deeply internalized in my mind, as they get triggered or as I start to 
to uh, go down a familiar neuropathway that doesn't actually reflect what I experienced God as, um, but has been conditioned into me. The question I ask myself and the question that I invite anybody to ask themselves as they're trying to differentiate and separate themselves from their codependency, from their abuser, or from their religious institution is, is there love in it? It is what is stirring in me. Is there love in it? And I remember hearing those scriptures that say, parents punish their children because they love them. And that's what God does. So if something bad happens to you, that's because God loves you and is trying to um, make you so. Yes. And so it was, it was a matter of me saying without justifying how this could somehow force me back into the arms of my abusive God slash lover. Is there love in this? Is the voice I'm hearing one of love and belovedness toward me? Or is this one of, I'll accept you if? Yeah. First yeah. Thing, God is love. So yeah. if, this is, if this is a loving feeling or thought, then that is yeah. literally of God or God's yeah. voice. In the midst of your chaos and violent messages and yelling and from chaos and abuse all around, you felt this still small voice mm -hmm. of God. So all these voices were claiming to be the voice of God coming from the pulpit and your religious uh, community. And God in you was yeah. telling you the opposite. No, listen to this. Mm -hmm. I'm in you. Mm -hmm. I've got you. Yes. Yeah. I, love that. I love that. Yes, I love it because I think, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to relive anything I went through. I wouldn't wish that on anybody for anything, but I wouldn't trade the assurance I have for anything either. Yeah. Um, I will, like, knowing that God can take me through every voice and every cultural experience telling me that I am inherently bad and somehow still feeling the, the, some awareness that, like, I got you and you're okay makes me think, you know, even if I go astray, because that's, again, one of those fears that you're taught in the evangelical church, that like in any moment you're about to get lost or whatever, even if I were to go astray and to lose track or to whatever, that God's immense love for me is so extravagant and so grand that if I know that God's voice can speak louder than that chaos, then I just have incredible trust that there is not a thing that I could do to separate me from the love of God. And, and I would pray and hope that while we may have like I can have intellectual knowledge of that, but my heart knowledge can be so different, right? So the invitation to all of us is again, that I can't remember the philosopher who said it, but that, that journey from head to heart being the longest pilgrimage of our whole life, that what does it mean for me to intellectually understand that what I endured was inappropriate and yeah. not God and not love. And then to begin to do the work in my own heart that says, this is telling me intellectually that that was wrong and I'm not loved. And yet I still get insecure and feel triggered and doubt my worth and my significance and insecurity and get to say, you know, there's love, it, there's love in, the, in that, I'm, that I belong and that I'm forgiven and that I'm okay. And so I'm going to keep doing that pilgrimage over and over. And, and uh, I think a lot of the trial for me was once I, learned liberation theology um and once i began to relearn the idea and constructs of god that actually honored the thing that i thought was the devil the whole time and was like oh that was god the whole time once i finally learned that um 
I was really disappointed that there wasn't this instant switch, like a light switch. I was so disappointed that I couldn't just go, okay, well now I believe that that's true and everybody's wrong. So now I won't struggle with that concept anymore. Um, but it really speaks to faith community. So church at Mission Gathering, hear me about that, right? Church community has the power to, to deeply and radically influence people's entire life story. Community is that powerful. And so what does it mean even during the season of quarantine to say, I believe God's redemptive love is so powerful and so big and so consuming that I'm going to be a reflection of love today and reach out to somebody knowing how significant community influences are. And I'm going to speak life because I didn't have somebody speaking life to me. And what would it mean to someone else? That is the power of community, that that narrative still plays in my mind that's negative could have been a narrative of my value. And that is the work that we're invited to do as a community together, as a group that gathers, whether it's physically in person, breaking bread together, whether it's a Zoom call, whether it's a text message, we are invited to reflect a genuine, there is love in it, relationship of Christ. And I feel compelled to do that work, even in these uncertain times where our roles and the methods are changing. Um, God's love isn't, isn't yeah. changing. Yeah. That's a powerful story. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you for your voice. Yeah, thanks for having me today. I really appreciate it. It was fun. I got to visit your church one time. It was a complete and total joy. Um, I visited with a friend who still is a big fan of, of what the work you guys are doing in Issaquah. And I'm so grateful that we are building genuine love-based Christ community together across our region. So thank you for your work. Yeah, well, I think that's a powerful message for all of us today in the midst of our fear our anxiety, our social isolation, our re-experiencing of our past traumas to remember uh, that voice, I got you. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yes. Powerful.